And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, that's the very last book of the Bible, so it's an easy one to find. Revelation chapter 12. Um, Next week we'll be starting a brand new sermon series through the book of Acts. Really excited about that. Uh, But for now we approach the final message in this Christmas sermon series uh, entitled Christus Victor. Christ the Conqueror, Christ the Victorious. We've tried to look at Christmas from a wartime perspective because Christmas indeed marks the escalation of an ancient war between good and evil, and we're going to end this series in Revelation chapter 12. Now, like the book of Daniel, which we discussed a few weeks ago, Revelation falls in the genre of biblical writing known as apocalyptic literature. And therefore, it's going to be filled with all kinds of of graphic, fantastical, visual images which serve as symbols illustrating actual realities. And sometimes that vivid imagery can seem puzzling and startling and sometimes even a little bit scary. And so people run away from Revelation. They wonder, what is the point of reading this crazy stuff? But ultimately, uh, as we talked about a few weeks ago in Daniel, um, uh, biblical apocalyptic writing is not meant to discourage or scare God's people, but actually to encourage and embolden them. Now, Revelation was written by the Apostle John in a time where Christians found themselves living in a difficult world, where there was opposition to the church, there was persecution. In fact, John himself was writing this book under persecution. He was in exile. Uh, he was on the, the island of Patmos, not by choice. He was, he was made to go there. That was like his prison, and he was, he was being persecuted for preaching the gospel. Uh, what's more, God's people face danger from false teachers who were threatening to knock the church off course and, and, and away from the gospel. What's more, the church had to live in a very godless society where the entire world was going in the opposite direction and and Christians more and more were looking like weirdos and aliens in a society that was enticing them to compromise their faith and conform to the world. There were threats from all sides and things did not seem to be getting better for the church. In some ways, it seemed to be getting worse. And when you really think about it, not a lot has changed between the first century and the 21st century. The war between good and evil and light and darkness continues. Uh, The church sometimes seems to be on the losing end of that struggle, and sometimes it seems like we will ultimately be swept away and defeated. And while in exile, God gives John this stunning revelation, this series of visions that he is to write down and pass on to the churches. And the vivid graphic, symbolic imagery that John sees is not meant to confuse reality, but actually to clarify it. Uh, Despite some of the details of Revelation being challenging to interpret, uh, the vivid pictures that John gives us in this book give an overall uh, message that is impossible to miss. So Revelation is meant to to give encouragement and hope and strength to God's suffering and war-weary people struggling through life in a dark and fallen world where evil and injustice and opposition to the church seem to reign. But like a pair of glasses, like corrective lenses, Revelation gives us the true story about what's really going on in the world, and ultimately it is good news for the people of God. 
So brothers and sisters, I'm very excited to, uh, to end uh, 2020 in this incredible chapter. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the perfect and precious words of our great and glorious God. Revelation 12, which by the way stands really at the heart of this book, the center of this book in, in many ways is, is, uh, is uh, the center of the message uh, of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, starting at the very first verse. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was, also, was given <clears throat> the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured <clears throat> water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning to consider this incredible chapter in the Bible, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will help us to keep the main thing the main thing. It's really easy in apocalyptic literature to get lost in the, in the details and in the individual trees and miss the whole forest. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us to see the big picture and that it would lead to us believing and rejoicing in you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, 
when I began this series, some of you were struck by my suggestion uh, that to help make your nativity sets more accurate, you need to, along with Mary and Joseph and shepherds and animals and the baby Jesus, you also need to put in that nativity set an enormous red dragon. And some of you thought I was crazy or just trying to be cute, but now you can see I was being biblical. It's right here. Uh, What the apostle John gives us in Revelation 12 is his version of the nativity story. And and he shows us the ultimate ramifications of Jesus coming into the world. In fact, Revelation 12 provides us with a summary of the entire Bible story. The entire history of redemption is given to us in this one chapter. It's truly amazing, and it's very encouraging. Well, there are five particular things that John wants wants us to see in this text. And the first thing that we see is a damsel in distress. A damsel in distress. John says in verse 1 that a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, in Revelation, a sign refers to a great spectacle full of symbolic significance. And in this part of the vision, John is standing outside, he's looking up into the sky, and suddenly he sees this, this amazing drama playing out before him, above him. He sees a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Text says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, who does this woman symbolize? Your first instinct may be to say, well, this is Mary. Indeed, that's the Catholic interpretation of this text. Now, I do think that Mary is connected to this sign, but this is not specifically Mary. And as we consider this sign, it's good to remember that Revelation is rich with Old Testament references and callbacks and allusions, and so it's just helpful to have that in mind. And in the Old Testament, the people of God were commonly depicted as a woman. Notice this woman is clothed with the sun, and the, and, and the moon is at her feet, and she's got a crown of 12 stars around her head, which harken back to the 12 tribes of Israel. This also harkens back to, to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, where, where he sees his family, which is kind of um, uh, Israel in infant form, uh, as the sun and the moon and, and the stars, But the people of God were also not just depicted in the scriptures as a woman, but sometimes even as a pregnant woman, uh, even agonizing in labor. Indeed, the Jews would speak of the birth pains of the Messiah, uh, referring to the pains that the Messianic community experienced, the, the collective struggle and difficulty and tribulation of the people just before the Messiah would come to rescue them. But the Old Testament scripture that is most tightly connected with this laboring woman that John sees is Genesis 3.15, where in the wake of the serpent leading Adam and Eve to rebel against God, and as a result, unleashing the curse of sin and death into the world, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that that, uh, he would put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring, in other words, those who follow after the devil in rebellion, and her offspring, that would be those who trust and follow God, he, one special offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. And the entire Bible story after that 
is an outworking of that verse. It's an outworking of that conflict that God says will happen. And so throughout redemptive history, we see the people of God waiting for that offspring to be born, uh, to crush the serpent and bring an end to the, to the murderous works of the devil. And so the woman that John sees in Revelation 12 is not just Mary, but the collective messianic community to whom it was promised that Messiah would be born. And, and throughout the history of redemption, <clears throat> we have a history of expectancies, a promised offspring. How often uh, do we see in the Bible the promise of a, of a miraculous birth of a special child, sometimes to a woman who is barren, who can't have kids, and the child is born, and it's wonderful, and God uses that child, but in the end, that child turns out to not be the Savior, but just another sinner. He's not the one. And so the waiting continues. And finally, after centuries of waiting, Galatians 4.4 tells us that when the fullness of time had come, then God sent forth his son, born of a woman, which is an odd statement. Of course he's born of a woman. (laughs) Why, Why would Paul emphasize that? Because he's wanting us to recall Genesis 3.15. Mary isn't an isolated person. She she is bound up in this ancient promise as she finds herself the culmination, the climax, the, the last of a long line of Israelite mothers longing for Messiah. And all of the hopes of all of the faithful mothers of God's people are concentrated now in her. But before we get too celebratory, we also see with John a devouring dragon, a devouring dragon. Verse three says that another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. There is a long history in the ancient Near East regarding dragons and the symbolism behind them. They were regularly associated with chaos and evil and dark spiritual powers that stand in opposition to all that is good. And lest there be any doubt who this dragon is, who this dragon symbolizes, John tells you in verse 9, which I'm always grateful when these apocalyptic writers give us a little something. So, you know, I mean, we're working hard trying to untangle this stuff, and here he just tells it like it is. He, uh, the, the dragon is the devil himself. And he's colored red, which, which in apocalyptic writing symbolizes war and murderous bloodshed. And the dragon uh, has not one head. A one-headed dragon's bad enough. This one has seven heads. This speaks of enormous power and strength. And he's got ten horns. Now, horns in apocalyptic, apocalyptic writing speaks not just to power, but also to kingdoms. A Satan is one who has dominion and authority over the nations. And this idea, by the way, goes all the way back into the Old Testament. In Psalm 74, Egypt, in all of its anti-God sentiment, is referred to as Leviathan, this monstrous beast. And in Isaiah 27, Assyria Uh, and Babylon are likewise connected with Leviathan, whom the prophet calls the twisting serpent and the dragon of the sea. And the idea there is not that these nations are the dragon, but they are a visible personification of everything that the dragon represents and stands for. 
and more than that, that that standing behind these powerful evil empires is a power that is darker and more evil and greater than they, controlling and influencing them in all of their anti-God activity. Being that the number 10 in the Bible is often a number of fullness, 10 horns could speak of, of Satan's complete domination over the kingdoms of this world. Notice also this dragon has a diadem, a a royal crown on each head. The dragon himself is seen to be a king. And and the point of all of this is that Satan is powerful. Uh, He he has great might. You remember in uh, in, uh, Matthew chapter 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus and and he says, listen, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. I can give them to whomever I want to give them. These are are my kingdoms and and they'll be yours if you worship me. Now, now there's some truth there in what Satan is saying there in regards to his his, his, uh, influence uh, over the kingdoms of this world and, and even to a degree his dominion over the kingdoms of this world. And indeed, the Apostle Paul uh, calls uh, Satan the god of this world. So, so again, the, the point here, Satan is powerful. He has great might. He is not a being to be trifled with. And here the Apostle John corrects what is a common error among people, even Christians, uh, and that is to minimize the devil to trivialize the devil, to see him as a goofy cartoon character with red pajamas and a pitchfork. Sometimes we don't take the devil seriously. Uh, when we look around at the evils in this world, we, we tend to exclusively think in material terms, and we fail to take into account that there is a, a malevolent being of enormous power orchestrating things behind the scenes, even in our own personal lives and, and relationships as we consider the, the corrupting influence of sin in our own families and, and breakdowns in relationships between husbands and wives and children and parents. We, we naively think that all that is going on is what we can see with our eyes. But John, in verse 9, calls this dragon the deceiver of the whole world. And elsewhere, the apostle Peter compares him to a devouring lion. And we ignore this being at our own peril. He is more dangerous than most of us realize. And this danger is amplified by what John sees next. Uh, This enormous dragon in the night sky sweeps down to the ground a third of the stars with his tail. Now, some see this as an allusion to a time long ago when the devil, who used to be a good angel, went rogue and deceived a third of the angelic host and convinced them to join in the insurrection. And those fallen stars, those fallen angels, become what we know today as demons. Others, however, recognize that Revelation's Old Testament counterpart, the book of Daniel, uh, serves as an important background to the book of Revelation. And Daniel 8 in particular describes the persecution and the killing of God's people as stars being thrown to the ground and trampled. I personally am more inclined to that view. And, and so, so John speaks here of the warfare that Satan wages against all believers. Uh, but regardless, uh, we should see in this dragon a reflection of what Martin Luther wrote about Satan in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress, that we just sang. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. At the end of verse 4, we are given an image that is shocking and grotesque. It's meant to be grotesque. 
This woman is in agonizing labor, her feet up in the stirrups, pushing with all her might to bring forth the child. And standing on the other end between her legs is not a midwife. It's not a doctor. It's a dragon with open mouth, ready to devour the child. Now, when we read that, most of our minds will immediately go to King Herod uh, and his attempt to destroy Christ, whom he saw as a threat to his kingdom. But remember, this war between the dragon and the child did not start in Bethlehem. It's an ancient war. It goes back to the very beginning. The dragon has been forever haunted by God's promise to crush his head through the offspring. And so, and so he doesn't wait till Bethlehem. In Genesis 4, when Cain kills righteous Abel, it's not just about Cain being jealous of Abel. There's more going on here. And Revelation 12 reminds us what's really going on. The devil moves Cain to strike down the seed of the woman. Indeed, all of the hostile opposition throughout the Old Testament is an outworking of this ancient conflict. The devil keeps trying to destroy the offspring. He keeps trying to prevent Messiah from crushing his head. It's why Pharaoh starts drowning those Hebrew babies. It's why the nation of Edom is always coming after Israel with hostile anger. It's why Saul was always trying to kill David. It's why the the evil queen Ataliah attempted to destroy the entire royal line of David. It's why Haman attempted genocide on the entire Jewish race. All of these people and more, while having their own reasons for doing what they were doing, nevertheless could not recognize the hiss of the serpent and the roar of the dragon influencing their own dark thoughts and plans. You see, you have to read all of these conflicts in the Old Testament through the lens of Genesis 3.15 and the cosmic warfare between the serpent and the seed of the woman. If the offspring of the woman was a threat to Herod's kingdom, he was an even greater threat to Satan's. Remember, this dragon has diadems on his heads. Uh, Crowns signifying power and authority, and the last thing he wants to do is surrender those crowns to Christ. And so John paints here a graphically terrifying picture. You have baby versus seven-headed dragon. Who are you going to bet on in a battle like that? Which leads to my next point, a victorious son. A victorious son. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's noteworthy how fast this scene moves. The birth Life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are all compacted into this one verse. It's swift, it's sudden, it's abrupt, it's almost anticlimactic. These first few verses have been giving us this huge and dreadful buildup, haven't they? Uh, the damsel in distress, the dragon who threatens, and then the child is born, and, and the dragon is there. Oh no, what's going to happen? And and despite the threat and the power and the supposed authority of this dragon, the dragon cannot touch him. The son is caught up to God and to his throne. All of Satan's schemes and plots are foiled with split-second speed. And the dragon stands thwarted and frustrated. It was all in vain. John says this male child is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. 
That's an allusion to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 speaks of the satanically inspired nations raging against the rule and the authority of God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's chosen king. The people are raging. They are angry because they want to be autonomous. They want to build and exalt their own kingdom and not be held accountable to God. That's how all of us are apart from God changing our hearts. And in light of all of the the raging and all of the opposition and all of the rebellion against Christ, how does God respond in Psalm 2? Is God anxious? Is he insecure? Is he wringing his hands and thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? The kingdoms of this world are against me. The dragon is against me. How does God respond? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Friends, someone who feels threatened and is worried about the future does not laugh. But God laughs. Why? Because it's pitiful. It's pathetic. All of the raging of the enemies of God, whether human or demonic, is to God nothing more than a vain temper tantrum thrown by a child who thinks he has more control and power than he actually does. And God laughs at it. Psalm 2 then says of God, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, You can rage all you want. It's all in vain. It's not going to work. I've already made up my mind. This is where history is going. This is the right side of history. We we hear that talk a lot today, right? You want to be on the right side of history. This is the right side of history. It's as good as done, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Now, that's really important, because while One error that people make about the devil is that they minimize his power. The other error is that people overstate his power. It is true that his craft and power are great. And it is true that he is armed with cruel hate. And it is true that on earth is not his equal. But guess what? The Lord is not of this earth. Our God is in the heavens, the psalmist says. And whatever he pleases... He does, period. That is raw sovereignty. He does whatever he wants to do, and there is no one else in the universe that can make that claim. Does the dragon have power? Yes. There's nothing compared to God. Does the dragon have authority? Yes, but there's a higher authority. Does the devil rule over the kingdoms of this world? Well, yes, in a way. But there is a greater king that he must answer to. And his kingdom, indeed all other kingdoms, will ultimately be swallowed up by God's. That's the message of Psalm 2. And so as Psalm 2 continues, it envisions a conversation between the Father and Christ. The psalmist writes, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Sound familiar? That's what John was just talking about in chapter 12. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so going back to Revelation 12, John reminds us who the real king is. Who, who really is in charge. Uh, the, the dragon is a faux king. 
There, there, there is a, the, the, the authority and the might that he possesses, it's, it, at, at, at the end of it all, it's an illusion. That's important to know. That's important to know who's really in charge because difficult times are ahead for the people of God. That's the point of verse 6, which says that the woman fled into the wilderness. There, there's, there's coming upon God's people a period of time where they will experience a furious assault by the dragon. That's why she's fleeing. And that, that all is expanded on in, in, in verses 13 through 17. So, so let's keep moving forward in the text, and let's move on to the, to the next uh, point here, and that is that we see a dragon conquered. A dragon conquered. Verses 4 and 5 give us an earthly perspective of the warfare between Christ and Satan and Christ's victory. But verse 7 peels back the curtain and shows us the same victory now from a heavenly perspective. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, again, some would take this scene also to refer to the original satanic rebellion against God. But I don't think so. Because this warfare and Satan's defeat are too closely tied with the victory of Jesus through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, in verse 8, it says that there was no longer any place for them in heaven. That raises a question. Was there ever a place for the devil? Would he not be immediately denied access to heaven forever from the moment he first rebelled? You see, you really don't have a problem with this if, 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 if verses 7 and 8 refer to the original rebellion, right? Like he rebelled and then boom, God kicked him out. But, but if you hold my view, there's a little bit of a problem here. Did, did, did he ha, you mean he had a place in heaven? What does that mean? Uh, you, you would think that, yes, Satan would immediately be denied access to heaven from the moment he first rebelled. You would think that. But the scriptural answer is evidently not, at least not totally. Two of the, the, the very rare instances where Satan actually is mentioned in the Old Testament, he's actually seen as being in heaven. One of those moments is in the book of Job, where the angels come to present themselves before God, and shockingly, Satan's there also. Uh, and, and, and actually, he has a conversation with God. And Satan begins to make accusations towards Job, suggesting that Job's main motivation for following God is not for God's own sake, but because of the material comforts and blessings that Job gets out of it. That's a little spoiler, by the way, if you're going to be in my Job Bible study in a couple of weeks. That one's free. The, the word Satan isn't actually a proper name as much as it is a title. And the word carries the idea of an adversary and an and accuser. Um, indeed, in Job, it, literally, he's referred to as the Satan. Um, and he serves as something of a prosecuting attorney seeking to convict and condemn Job. Now, the other verse to consider is Zechariah 3.1. And here, Zechariah has a vision of what appears to be the heavenly courtroom And it says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, 
and Satan, the Satan, standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, the angel of the Lord is regularly in the Old Testament associated with the very presence of God himself. And here, Joshua is standing before God as judge. God's the judge. And lo and behold, standing there to the right, again like a prosecuting attorney, is Satan himself accusing Joshua of sin, of breaking God's law. This is the devil's primary weapon, his accusations, his ability to highlight your guilt. He loves to do it, and he loves to tell God about it. Why? Well, because what does God do to sinners? He kills them. Wages of sin is death. To be convicted in God's courtroom as a lawbreaker means suffering God's wrath eternally in hell. And since the devil is a murderer, he loves to entangle people in sin and the guilt that comes with it. And by the way, those, those accusations also are not just against uh, the, the, the sinners, the people, but there is also embedded in there an accusation against God. You are supposed to be a God of justice. You're not doing anything about this. Look at what he has done. Now, hold that thought. Go back to Revelation 12. There is now warfare in heaven. The heavenly courtroom is a battlefield. And Satan is defeated and cast out of heaven, and he's thrown down to earth. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. In other words, something has just happened that has triggered Satan's defeat. And what is it? Well, it's the victory that we already talked about in verse 5, and it's, it's the salvation of God, and it's the coming of the kingdom of Christ. And, and what happens as a result of this victory? Well, the end of verse 10 says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And now, the other question is, what specifically has happened that has caused Satan to be finally thrown down? and for the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ to come. It's the atoning work of Jesus. Indeed, when the apostle Paul is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 13, he also reaches back to Psalm chapter 2, to that great decree where God says to Christ, you're my son, today I've begotten you, ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. And then Paul says, all of that is fulfilled by the resurrection of Christ. And of course, the resurrection assumes all of Christ's atoning work, his death, his burial, his ascension into heaven. And and what ultimately does the atoning work of Christ do? It atones for our sins. Uh, The very thing that got us into trouble with God and and, and put us all on death row. Uh, Friends, we were guilty. We were convicted. Ephesians 2 says we all by nature were children of wrath. If you're standing in a courtroom, how easy would it be for a prosecutor to prove that you are a sinner? About five seconds for me, if that long. We owed God a massive debt. And Jesus came to Bethlehem at just the right time, born of a woman, born of to die. For us, Christmas is warm, fuzzy sentiment. 
For Jesus, Christmas was a death sentence as he came as a substitute to stand in for the sinner. He takes our place in the courtroom, and everything that was wrong with us is assumed by him. And so now he is declared guilty in the courtroom, and he pays the debt. For whom? For anyone who would believe in him. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 11. And so now, if you believe in Jesus and he has paid the penalty for your sin, you have nothing to fear in God's heavenly courtroom. Satan can accuse and accuse and accuse and jab his finger at you, and it is empty words. Everything that he accuses you of has been moved from you to Christ. It is as if the judge himself pays the fine for you or is executed for you. And so justice is done. Justice is done. God God can forgive you and your sin can actually be dealt with which blocks all of the accusations of the devil, blocks the accusations of the devil against you, because all that sin now, all that debt has been paid for, blocks his accusations against God, because justice has been done now for those sins. God did not just sweep them under the rug and pretend they didn't happen. God takes sin very seriously. Look at the cross and you know. Justice has been done. And so, your case has been essentially dismissed. So now, let's go back to Zechariah 3, because he really gives us a beautiful picture of how Christ's atonement works. We're back in the heavenly courtroom. Satan is being a nuisance, accusing Joshua of sin. And and I'm sure if Joshua was just like us, which I'm sure he was, that means that Satan had a book this thick, full of every sinful action, every sinful word, Every secret thought that Joshua ever had that was impure, it's all, I don't have arms big enough to, to hold the book of, of, of all of the sins that Joshua, who's just like us, would have committed. And there he is, the Satan, jabbing an accusatory finger at him over and over and over again. And, and then as we read, we see that God has had enough. And Zechariah writes that the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. That is a beautiful picture of how Christ saves his people. Not only does Jesus deal with the sins of his people by taking our dirty rags on himself, and so God then treats Jesus accordingly by killing him, but Jesus, the perfect man who never sinned, puts his pure and spotless garments on the believer, and so now he is seen as clean and pure and perfect as if he has always obeyed God. And so God treats the believer accordingly by receiving him and showing him honor and favor. And because Jesus wasn't actually a sinner, but was the substitute, he didn't have to stay dead. And his resurrection demonstrates to the world not only that he is God's king, but also that his payment for sin was accepted by God. 
Author of Hebrews says that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So, in all of that, both Jesus and his people are vindicated. And so, in God's heavenly courtroom, guess what? There's nothing, even, there's nothing more to talk about. There's nothing more to discuss. And therefore, as soon as that price was paid and your case was dismissed, God dispatches his angels as heavenly bouncers, so to speak, expelling Satan and all of his junior attorneys out of the courtroom. Satan has no place in heaven anymore. He's been fired. Satan's main weapon against you, accusation, is gone. The blood of Christ has taken care of that and washed away anything that Satan would accuse you of. And so, going back to Revelation 12, verse 10, John hears a loud voice proclaiming victory, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. This defeat of Satan not only vindicates the people of God and and also vindicates God, but it also serves as a sign that Satan's days are numbered, and he knows it. Verse 12 says the devil comes in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. And so, as a result, he turns his rage towards the very people that Christ has saved, which leads to my final point, which is a people protected. A people protected. Verse 13 When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now again, the woman here represents the people of God, not just believing Jews, but Gentiles. Uh, Those 12 stars around her head speak not only of the 12 tribes of Israel, but the 12 apostles through whom Jesus began to form a new covenant community. Because again, remember, Christ has now come and has ascended, and so the nations are his heritage, and people of every tribe and tongue are part of this community. And if you look down to verse 17, it says, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So the woman is the people of God, her offspring is Messiah, but Messiah is to be distinguished between the rest of her offspring. Who, and who are they? Well, John tells you. It's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. It's Christians. And in fact, John's language here is not unique to Revelation chapter 12. At the beginning of 2 John, the very same author begins his letter by saying that he is writing to the elect lady and her children. It's clear there he's talking about the church. And in Revelation 12, the angry dragon has the elect lady in his sights. Now, It may be asked, why, if the dragon has been defeated, why is he coming after God's people? How can this be? I thought thought he lost. I thought he was defeated. What was happening here? Well, it's not unlike what you had at the end of World War II, when the Allies successfully invaded the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. It was clear that the war was over for Hitler, right? The Allies advancing from the West. You had Russia on the other side, it was over. Hitler was done. The crippling blow had been struck. And yet, after D-Day, some of the fiercest battles in the war were fought, and difficult days for the Allies were still ahead. Hitler had lost. He knew his time was short, but in stubborn arrogance, he would not concede. 
And so he tried to inflict as much damage as possible as he went down. It's exactly the motivation of the dragon. He's lost. His time's short. He knows it. Says it. Says it right here. He knows it. And he lashes out in fury in his death throes. Verse 14 says that the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished. This recalls the Exodus in the Old Testament. When God redeemed Israel from bondage to Pharaoh, he said, I have borne you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Eagle's wings, of course, is a, is a metaphor representing God swooping in to protect his, his vulnerable people. And of course, after Israel was rescued from slavery, where did God take them on eagle's wings? Into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. That, that's exactly what we see here in verse 14. And for John's Jewish readers the, the, who were familiar with the Old Testament and with Exodus, the wilderness would have represented a time of difficulty. Yes, God was with them, but, but it was still hard. They were not home yet. They were not in the promised land yet. They were living in between times, in between God's rescue and the promised land. And so they had to totally depend on God for sustenance in a harsh and difficult environment. Likewise, John's vision foresees difficult days ahead for the people of God after Christ's victory on the cross and his ascension. Verse 15 says, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Again, this is symbolic language. Uh, Does the flood represent persecution or false teaching or deception of some sort? Uh, I'd say all of the above. And the end goal is so that the woman would be swept away. It's the devil trying to bring down the church. And of course, if you keep reading Revelation, you'll see in the very next chapter, another beast rising out of the sea, empowered by the dragon. And this beast represents the state. Evil government forces intent on opposing God and crushing his people, even demanding worship of the state. And yet, in spite of all that the dragon does, God is with his people. Verse 16 says, the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Now, none of this means that God's people will not be harmed in some sense by the dragon. In fact, the next chapter, you have those who remain faithful to God, refusing to worship the beast, being martyred. Uh, Revelation 13, 7 says, it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. On the other hand, God's promise of protection and provision at the end of chapter 12 signify that the church will not ultimately be destroyed. The church will survive, even thrive. As it has been said in the the past, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Historically, God has used persecution to indeed make the church stronger. And this surely is one reason why the dragon is furious. Verse 17, he's furious. No matter what he does, he cannot win. He cannot consume the child. He could not keep his place in heaven. And despite his best efforts, he can't destroy God's people. Not ultimately. Indeed, his best efforts will be cut short. That's the significance of 1,260 days in verse 6 and time times and half a time in verse 14, regardless of how you specifically interpret that. And there's different schools of thought on that. Unless you've gotten about another five hours, we're not going to get into that. But the main idea is that the wilderness period for God's people won't last forever. In the grand scheme of things, the dragon's rage is for a short time, and soon he will be silenced. 
And even if in the meantime he kills God's people, he still loses. Why? Go back again to verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, by by the word of the gospel. For they love not their lives even unto death. You see, because of the blood of of the Lamb, God's people are eternally safe and secure. But more than that, they conquer. Jesus is Christus victor. But God's people conquer with him. It's one of the main themes in Revelation. And how here specifically is their conquest demonstrated? Again, verse 11, for they love not their lives even unto death. Now that, that is a great irony. This is the great twist in the story. Even as Jesus, though he appeared to be conquered in his death by his enemies, he, he appeared to be conquered by them, he ends up actually conquering his enemies So likewise with God's people. God's people, who in Revelation 13 are seen as being conquered by the beast, are later seen in Revelation 15, in heaven. And they're described as those who have conquered the beast. And we see them singing a war song, a victory song, the song of the Lamb to Christus Victor, Revelation 15. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come. All nations will come and worship you. All nations, all people. The nations are his heritage. You can try to fight it. You can try to protest it. You can try to resist it. You can try to stop it. All the powers of hell can bend their fury against it. It doesn't matter. This is the end game. Uh, The whole arc of history is bending in one direction and it's towards the enthronement of God's Christ. And if you keep reading Revelation, you'll see that all rebels who remain in the insurrection, all would-be usurpers to Christ, and even the dragon himself will be finally done away with and cast into the lake of fire where they will receive the justice of God forever. This is why Psalm 2 ends on this note. Therefore, O kings, be warned. Be wise, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Your response to Christmas, if you're a believer, is to be worship and praise, and thanksgiving. You've conquered. You've conquered the dragon through the blood of the lamb. If you're the kind of person with a tender conscience, and you're you're very aware of your own sinful imperfections, uh, and you hear voices in your head that are accusing you, and pointing fingers at you, saying, look at you. You say that you're a Christian? (laughs) I know what you did. Maybe nobody else at Harbin's church knows what you did, but I know. I know those impure thoughts in your head. I know those things that are going on in your life that you're trying to hide. I know the unbelief that is buried in your heart. How can you possibly be saved? You might as well just throw yourself into sin. If you have trusted Christ, your response needs to be, you know what, devil? You're right. I am a great sinner, but he's a great Savior. He's a great Savior, and I'm cleansed. 
through his blood. If you are an unbeliever, your response to Christmas needs to be to kiss the son, to show honor to him, to lay down your weapons, lay down your sword of rebellion, and surrender to his kingship. Trust in him. Trust in his sacrifice on the cross. Trust and hope for his coming kingly rule. Find refuge in him. The, the, the psalm ends, blessed or happy are those who find refuge in him. You want to be happy? <laughs> find refuge in Christ and conquer with him, with Christus Victor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your help as we have worked our way through a difficult text and a text where there will be different schools of thought and different interpretations on some of the particulars, but, but I hope and pray that, that the one big, main, overarching message is driven into all of our hearts, that Christ reigns and that we conquer with him, not, not through, through us being strong and, 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 and us being awesome and powerful, but through being weak and humbly coming before you and trusting in the sacrifice of Christ and the blood of the Lamb. That's how we conquer. Not by being strong, but by linking ourselves to the strong one who conquers. Father, I pray for any here this morning who are in dragon-like rebellion against you and are raging against you and are stubbornly holding on to their swords of insurrection. Father, I pray that you would break through to their hearts even now. <clears throat> even now, as, 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 as an unbeliever is sitting here, they can be saved. And so, Father, we pray that you would do so, and that you would conquer unbelieving hearts. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.